Welcome to the Appalachian Baptist Network. We seek to equip, encourage, and engage pastors and church leaders in the Appalachian region. We focus on having conversations on church revitalization in the mountains and beyond. Your hosts are Matthew Jacobs, Brent Snyder, Jacob Gwynn, and Travis Tyler. Welcome back to another episode of the Appalachian Baptist Podcast. You're joined today by me, Matthew Jacobs, and the great, famous Dr. Travis Tyler. Travis, how are you doing today? I don't know about any of those titles. You know, I've got a cup my brother-in-law got me that says, not that kind of doctor. <laughs> Hold it up all the time. <laughs> not be appropriate. <laughs> or, or as my kids love to say, Papa T. They do like to call me that. And I, they do. they're, they're allowed because you're, we, you, you have two of the cutest children on the planet. So that's okay. Thank you. I like to think so as well. I mean, there's only three other kids I'd put just, just at the same level or maybe a little more cute. And that's my own. Right. But and they are, and your kids are a blast. They are. They're, <laughs> a lot of fun. they're a little older now. So their cuteness is wearing off. And Asher's starting to look more like a, a young man than he is a, little, a kid, a little cute kid. So anyway, it happens. It happens. But today we're, we're on part two of uh, the podcast on how to survive a church split. And so we're going to flip the switch, so to speak, and we're going to sit there and I'm going to ask you the questions oh today. So I hope that you are ready to, to give answers, sir. Ready as I'm on to be, brother. All right. So, so, so to, to kind of recap a little bit, we defined in the last podcast that a church split was anywhere from 25% all the way up to 50% of a um, congregation leaving to go and be a part of a new church, correct? Would, would that be a good? Yeah, that, that's true. And um, one thing I didn't get into as much in the last episode, but I will say, since we're talking about definition, I think I may have said something to the effect of um, the church split could be for a good reason or a not so good reason. Yeah. And biblically speaking, I wrote a... Um, I think I sent this to you early this morning. I wrote a article for, it actually went in the Tennessee Baptist Reflector and it was in our local paper here in Elizabeth. And then it was also, you can find it on my blog, uh, ask pastor T and, um, at, at blogger. But anyway, um, the tar- our article's title is how do I survive the heartache or heartbreak of a church split? And then one one of the points I made was you just sometimes you need to recognize that sometimes godly people have sharp disagreements. And, uh, you know, Acts 15 makes this point. Paul and John Mark had some kind of a sharp disagreement. We don't have all the details with what that was, but Acts 15 records they have a disagreement and they split and one goes one way and one goes another. But they apparently patch it up because by the end, by the last letter that Paul writes, which is in Second Timothy, he asked for John Mark to come to him. He wants to see John Mark, and he says he's of great value. So they patch it up in the end, but whatever that disagreement was still calls the reality of the split. And so maybe it's a good reason. Maybe it wasn't. Not a lot of details. So, yes, that would be the definition of a church split, at least 25% all the way up to 40 or higher yeah. congregation. So. And I just want to reiterate that. That way when we talk about split, it's not, you know, one family got upset at the pastor and decided to leave. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's something that is very noticeable from one week to the next Yeah, you know, uh, of what's happened. Yeah. True, true, true. So uh, real quick, um, 
Travis, could, could you summarize for me kind of what you went through up in the great north? Yes. So I used to pastor in Indiana for some time. I had, uh, I actually started out in a position similar to yours where you are now. I was in youth ministry is what I was originally called to this church to do. And I watched a guy who had been in ministry about 40 years um, struggle with a power group in the church. He was eventually, he left and we experienced a fracture when he left. So I wouldn't quite say it was a split because I don't know that quite 25% of the church left. I would say 15% left when he left. Then I watched a rising SBC star, which is uh, Sam Rayner. He listens to our podcast occasionally. So Sam, if you're listening, I watched him try to deal with it for a while. I think he got his fill of it and he left. And then I became pastor. And I thought I would be different than the brother before me. And I thought I'd be different than Sam. But the reality was there was not really the case. Um, I think in the particular situation, I wish I would have done several things before I became pastor of the church. And I knew this in hindsight. I wish I had called the state denomination in Indianapolis and talked to them about the church because states state level knows what's going on in a lot of the local churches, particularly if they're uh, what this church was labeled as, and that's a pastor killer church. And it was so, you know, right after I was voted in as the pastor, they called me from Indianapolis and said, congratulations, you're pastor in one of our number one pastor killing churches in the state. And so that was really encouraging my first week as the pastor of the church. Uh, and then um, I wish I had done my homework with their ACP reports and that I had looked back to see what conflict or what, you know, membership it looked like. And in the church I was pastoring, there had been this pattern that went back 20 or 30 years. And this church had been planted in the 1960s, and it kind of was, you know, the area was a white flight area, hmm. which kind of gave an ethos to it of a rejection of authority in that culture. Like there was a kind of a hatred of authority, be it, you know, the law enforcement, the Bible, whatever it was. You could forget pastoral authority. It was almost non-existent in, in most people's minds. You're not going to tell me what to do, bump, and I'll go across the river, you know. So a lot of the people yeah. there came from Kentucky and moved over into Indiana to escape busing and other things that were being imposed on them. So there was this ethos in the culture, and uh, it was hard to deal with. And I pray God never calls me to another white flight community because that is hard pastoral ministry. <laughs> it is hard to deal with. Um, but can, we, can you real quick just define, because on our side of Appalachia, we might not be familiar with what white flight is. Yeah, sure. So um, this is really sad, but, you know, this is just the reality of the situation. And in Louisville, which is the town I'm talking about, uh, they would move into different areas like Shively or areas like that. And they would say, we're going to do integration. And so we're going to take a lot of the black schools and the white schools and we're going to mix them together. And so they would take kids that maybe lived a few miles from their school and they would ship them to schools, say, in the west end of Louisville. And so they would be traveling on buses for sometimes 45 minutes to an hour with stoplights and traffic and such. And uh, people didn't like that. And some of them said they didn't like it because of the, you know, travel time and the fact that you couldn't go to school in the neighborhood that your school was in. But I, I can't help but think that there was a tinge of racism about the whole thing as well, because, you know, the Shively community in Louisville for many years was predominantly white. And then, you know, as busing started and different things started, the ethos of that community changed and the people left that area and then moved over into the area that I was pastoring in. Uh, and there was no busing or anything over there at that time. So, 
So that's what it is. It is white people trying to escape the integration of their own community. And they move into a, a new community mm -hmm. where they can have more control to where that won't happen, basically. Thank, thank you. I, the only reason I'm saying that is South Alabama, there are insane amounts. Like when I went to college and, you know, the town that I kind of call where I'm from, white flight was like prevalent, 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 prevalent. Um, but up here, not necessarily the case. I, it might be in, in East Tennessee, but, but I know in West North, Western North Carolina, white flight is non-existent. No, I don't think here in East Tennessee, it, I'm sure there are pockets where it has happened, but it is certainly not like it was in the Midwest. Um, my wife's from St. Louis and there are definitely white flight communities in the St. Louis, Missouri area. Uh, you've seen Jefferson, you know, Missouri in the um, news, you know, not too long ago for the issue there. And so there's a, there's a, you know, biblically speaking, Christians are not racist, right? We believe Christ died for all people. And so there is a uh, extra hurdle of, uh, of hatred to get over there. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> But uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry to sidetrack us back in summarize. Yeah. <clears throat> so the, the cliff notes version of it goes something like this. The, the power group in the church that had put much pressure on the previous pastors uh, that I had served with and, and served under, I think looking back now, they were wanting someone young and fresh out of seminary that they felt like they could get what they wanted out of and could tell them what to do. And there came a juncture in the road. Everything was okay. I had a dear friend in the church and, and he was like a father to me and he passed away unexpectedly. He died in the night from heart complications. He had heart problems and he died a week before my first child was born. And so that was a pretty brutal loss. And he, I think he kind of kept, you know, the wolves at bay you know, for us, for me in particular as a pastor. But when he died, it was like kind of a free for all. <laughs> and, um, you know, the, the things that happened after that were, um, then that group, there was one guy who had a, um, an extra like for women that were about half his age and that he counted as vulnerable and it came to a head. We had had little incidences, but nothing major. And he was a deacon in the church, and he liked working the welcome, you know, when people came in and welcoming people, and sometimes being a little too welcoming for the females, if you understand what I'm saying. And um, the, the lady came. We used to be one of the best churches for Operation Christmas Child. So a lady came from Samaritan's Purse to help us. And he used the mission trip he was planning to get her phone number and then made many advances on her. And she told this, her husband told this, and then he, he also kissed her on the lips while she, he, she was on the campus. Like, it's kind of crazy to talk about this in retrospect. No doubt this may sound almost made up to some folks as they listen to this, but it, it really, it really happened. Um, and so the, the, it was almost like the more brazen the sin the more likely no one would challenge it. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Just because it's like, I can't believe my eyes that I just saw that happen, but it happened. So uh, we kind of fast forward a little bit. There were some things that happened and 
we, we, I, I kind of felt it was at a point where we needed to share it with the deacons. We shared it with the deacons and then it got worse. Like the extent of damage that this man had done, he had, he had treated other deacons wives in an awful way like this, trying to seduce them. And this guy's like 64, 67 years old. And these, these men are in their thirties, you know, and their wives are in their thirties. And uh, just, you know, his daughter was the same age as a lot of these women he's trying to seduce. So, uh, but he's in the core of this group, you know, of, of the power players. And so, you know, nobody that was in the power group was a deacon at the time. And so we brought him in, tried to talk to him, try to reason with him, try to put sanctions on him. And he agreed for a time, but then he got to a point after about three months, he said, I'm 67 years old. I'll do whatever I want to do. And, uh, we brought it to the church family and that night during the business meeting, somebody slashed my tires in the church parking lot. Yeah. Uh, I have the police report, you know, I, I, it's hard for me to even talk about cause it almost sounds like it's made up because it seems so crazy. Um, so my tires were slashed. The deacons are very gracious. They replaced my tires for me, you know? And so I, uh, they did two, two that weren't facing the road. You know what I mean? They left the two that were facing the road and they stabbed a knife into the other two. I thought I hit something. The people at the tire shop, they, they knew what happened when they saw the tires. So anyway, um, we struggled for a year after that. Uh, in that moment, we had a fracture. So we had probably, I would say, 25, 30% of the church just leave abruptly right after that all came out. And we handled it a very biblical way. I don't know how we could have handled it any more biblically than what we did, but it didn't stop. You know, the, the conflict went underground with phone calls and letters. One very sweet older couple in the church told me that they were going to leave two or three months after it was over just because they couldn't take the daily phone calls from the group. And so everything kind of just went underground. And then it came up, there was this church that had split off of the church before I was there, and I became very good friends with the pastor over there, and we said, you know, why are we trying to do the same vision for the church? Why don't we reunite these things and start a new work? And, and this is where the true split happened. And so we, we did months of meetings and discussions and things and prayer, and came down to the, you know, we were going to decide whether we want to, you know, end this church, because the church had developed a pretty rough reputation from, you know, splitting or fracturing every seven years in the community. I mean, we had the, we had the locksmith on speed dial, you know, call him up and got to come back up here and change the locks again. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, and that business meeting is like burned into my mind. It was the last Sunday night of May, last Sunday of May. It was after a lunch. My son had just been born May 1st. My wife's there with my newborn son. My other two are at home. I think we had family there. And the room was split in half. It was just 50-50. Um, half of the people, the deacons, the leadership, everything of the church were, wanted to do the new work, were ready to move forward and shutting the church down and starting a new work with this church split. The other half vehemently were against it and wanted to guard what they had. It was almost like when we took care of that one power group, another one rose up in its place and was more vehement about protecting their power because they had had to sit in the second chair for so many years from the other power group. And I remember when the vote came through, I knew that the vote was lost. Uh, when the vote came through that, um, you know, and it was like 50, 50, 
50 said, I think it was like 48% yes and 51 or 52% no. And we were missing two families that day that would have voted yes. So it was almost 50-50 if everyone had been there. And we didn't do absentee ballots, you know, and all that stuff. But I remember them, and this is etched in my mind. I can still sometimes see it when I close my eyes. I think about it every May. I remember them clapping and cheering, the ones that, you know, had caused all this trouble and all this ruckus. And they were clapping and they were saying, we have saved our church. Our church is saved. And they clapped and they cheered. And it just turned my stomach because, you know, the the group that had left with the one guy that was uh, involved in sexual morality, they had encouraged them the whole time not to vote for the new work, to stop all that, to, to save this church, because I think they wanted to come back in and take control. And, and uh, they just fed right into it. I mean, they just played on every fear imaginable. And I, I think that's kind of the cliff notes version. Was that clear enough? Is there anything? Yeah. To... I mean, that was heartbreakingly clear. Yeah. So um, by the end of the week, after that vote came through, I, by Wednesday, I was the last church leader left. Every deacon resigned immediately in that business meeting. Uh, the youth pastor resigned. The music leader had already resigned. The moderator resigned. The Sunday school teach the Sunday school um, director resigned. I was the last one left, and I remember walking in. This I'll share this last story here because this is important here that we that I highlight this. Um, and I told them this church was on a hill, you know, here in here in Elizabeth, and it, the people that have money live in the valley, and the people in Section Eight live up on the mountain and on the hill. Well, in Indiana, it was reversed. The people that were poor lived down in the valley in the flatland, and the people with money lived up in the hills. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so we were a church up on the hill, and I said, you know, this church has a record of fighting with itself. And I said, you guys have fought each other for years. You know, I showed them the attendance record, and I said, you can. You guys can stay up here and fight all you want, but me and my family are done. We're done with the tire slashing. We're done with the hateful calls. We're done with the the uh, threats and the emails and all that. We're we're done. And they their attitude was so calloused, and it was so uh, I don't know how to describe what it was like in that room that night. I had another guy that was with me. I had discipled for some time named Adam. And I was so glad he was in there. I wasn't willing to subject my wife to go into that meeting where I resigned. And um, and we left. And then the brothers at the church that we were trying to come together with, they wanted me to become an elder there. And they had done a lot of help for me, you know, emotionally. And my emotional state was not good at the time. Uh, I was ready to leave the ministry. And they kind of, God used them to reach in and help me. And when we walked into the other church, they were meeting. And we went from that meeting that was awful where people had, taken that resignation with a callousness and a hatefulness and then asked us to leave immediately to walking into a gym where they were meeting and they clapped as soon as we walked in and welcomed us with an open embrace. That was a, an amazing moment, uh, you know, to move from one where you're a villain to another where you're a hero, you know what I mean? Within yeah. a matter of a five minute drive. And so that was, that was a very emotional night to say the least. So, yeah. I mean, th- thinking through through emotions. I mean, my heart's just like I, I I can't fathom walking through that. And you know, so so we we sit there and think like the emotions tied into this because ministry is different than any other job. Like you can go work at 
whatever place you want to work at and you can leave work at home, but ministry work stays with you 24 seven. How, how did that affect you and Becky? Cause, cause your son wasn't that old at this point. So how, how, how well, did it affect y'all too? Actually my oldest son, it affected, um, did it? Okay. it did affect my oldest son. And I, he used to be very outgoing, much more like my daughter, you know, and he, he called the church building home. He would actually call really? it home. And when we moved over and left, he became very reserved and shy. And wow. to this day, he is still kind of shy and reserved. And I, I think it is related to this church split. And so I think it affected my son, my oldest son, um, and shaping him, uh, for Becky, yes, it was uh, it was it was horrific. I I don't think Becky endured the blunt of personal attacks like I did. I don't recall any at this particular moment, but I could be wrong. Uh, I think she had to deal with people attacking me, and that was hard for her, you know. And I sheltered her from some of that. I didn't let her be exposed to every little bit of that because it's too much at times, even mm -hmm. for me, as I look back, we both dealt with post-traumatic stress. Um, like I said, in the last episode, it's much like a divorce. And I can remember the first um, kind of church fellowship community event we had with the new church, which at that time was called Crossroad. Now it's called uh, Christ Fellowship, I think there in Georgetown, Indiana. And like, we were just not, we were in a state of brokenness and grief. And we had poured our lives into these people for almost a decade and it had turned out this way. So it wasn't, it wasn't like we went in and in six months tried to turn the church all the way around or something. We, we had loved these people, you know what I mean? And they had, and we had seen a, a flip of the switch and it was devastating and I looked at her and she looked at me and we didn't have to say anything. We both knew we were about to burst into tears just sitting there and nobody was doing anything wrong. Everybody was doing everything right. It's just that we were so broken from that split. We were so hurting and we were so grieving all those lost relationships that we just wanted to be alone in our grief together for a time. Does that make sense? Yeah, that completely makes sense. We actually got in the car to go home. And before I pulled out of the driveway, nobody was around and we just wept for about five minutes together. And, um, you know, just, there was just, there was hurt beyond words for both of us Yeah, hurt beyond words. So. No. And I, yeah, I, yeah, it's hard. Um, what, what, what would you say that God taught you during all of this? So there were, there were a lot of lessons and, and I'm going to be honest, some of these lessons that I'm going to share are actually embarrassing for me to admit this because this is an exposing of my own shortcomings as a minister and, and sin. Um, I think that if the church replant had worked where we had taken two and shut them down and made the new plant, you know, made the new church, if that had worked, I don't think my ego would have survived in a godly way. I think I would have been thrust into a level of pride. 
you know, they had sent people down from Indianapolis to interview us about the process because they thought this was going to be the model for the future of churches in Indiana that were, you know, in need of replanting. And there was a, there was a sense in which my own pride enjoyed that. And, you know, looking back over it, you know, and this, like I said, this is embarrassing to say, but I think God used it to expose prideful sin in my own heart, in my own life. Not by any means have I arrived. You know, I still have a long, lot of miles to go, but uh, that's one thing. Uh, another thing that I have, have learned through this, two more lessons that I think are critical and important, is that these local churches that we pastor, they're not our churches. Hmm. These churches belong to Jesus Christ. And because these churches belong to Jesus Christ, he will do what he wants with it. Uh, I remember whenever all this kind of blew up, I thought, what about all this work I've done? Uh, you know, I, you know, I think that I became too consumed because I think one of the deacons said, are you ready to be the face of this church? Are you ready to be the one who's associated with it? I mean, basically what he's saying, are you ready for your identity to become the pastor of this local church here in Indiana? And so, which leads me to my third point is what's critical for a pastor is that he does not become enamored with his identity as the pastor of such and such local church, but he must become enamored with his identity in Jesus Christ, because that's what gets you through this kind of a situation. Uh, you know, you're, you're not that way. And, and then the other thing that I would say is that, you know, what might be considered a failure by the world's standards sometimes is a success by the kingdom regard. Um, I haven't kept up closely with that church since I left. It was just too painful. We had to distance ourselves from some very toxic relationships in that. So we, we kind of, you know, we kind of defriended them on Facebook and, you know, there were some, and it mostly was linked to a lot of the people that they associated with or that they, um, you know, we didn't want to put some of them we really loved, but we didn't want to put them in an odd position because they still were a close association with people that were, were honestly, uh, treated us like enemies. And so uh, I didn't follow it closely, but there were a lot of people that were in that church that I think needed to move out of that environment that they were in into a more healthy environment, into a better gospel-centered church. And the the bigger picture here was God was able to kind of rescue those that were in a bad particular situation and put them in a better spot of where they needed to be. And so I think that's another thing that I learned that sometimes your ministry is, is not about building a huge church and having accolades for all that, but it's about faithful biblical preaching, faithful biblical teaching and faithful biblical shepherding and leading people that they're not yours, they're God's to where they need to be though. So. Yeah. No, no, that's, that's good. Um, so I ask you this eight years removed from the great north are you personally over this ordeal i don't know because there are times i think so and i went through a lot of hours of counseling with pastor ross and i i had he diagnosed me dr ross Nunes diagnosed me with post-traumatic stress like you see in the uh, uh soldiers that come home from war uh, I would have uh, dreams that I was in that business meeting. Mm. 
and I was stuck there, or I would have dreams that the people that voted against the new work were chasing me, and there was no escape, and they were meaning to kill me. Uh, and, you know, I would watch my wife just grieve. And I think that in one sense, we're over it in the sense of, you know, I don't think about it every day. There was a, there was a time in my life where I replayed the tape every day. So in that regard, I'm over it. But I think there's a lingering scar that stays with you when you go through that. I mean, and it's not necessarily an altogether bad thing. You know, in the Old Testament, Jacob wrestled with an angel of the Lord. And when that was over, he got two things, right? He got a new name, right? And he walked with a, we, he walked with a limp the rest of his life. So I think that there is a degree in which coming out of the situation I was in, as toxic and hard as it was, I think there's a limp spiritually. <laughs> you know, there's a limp, you know, that I, that I have from that. And uh, it is difficult for me when I'm thrust into conflicts now to not jump to worst case scenario immediately. I think that's partially colored from that. And sometimes that's right and warranted. But what I oftentimes tell my staff is I really hope I'm wrong. Like I can't tell you how many times I make that statement now. And I think it's just because I, I was in this, this horrific situation. So, uh, but you know, God has really used it, I think to help me to keep a closer eye on pride in my own life uh, in that too. So the, the limp in Jacob and the limp in my own life, I think is a reminder to keep a watchful eye on that pride that wells up so easily. Yeah. That's good. Anything you, you want to give if, um, if somebody was going through this, whether it's church members, pastors, deacons going through going through turmoil at a church right now, any advice you'd want to give to them? Yeah, so I would I would recommend that you find my article on my blog there and read it. But I'll I'll go through the high points of it. First and foremost, I would say you need to acknowledge the loss openly and honestly. Even if they were people that you didn't always see eye to eye with and you didn't get along with all the time. It's kind of like family, right? I mean, it's very much like family. There's family members that you love dearly, but you don't always see eye to eye with. You need to spend time grieving them. You know, um, in Second Timothy, can you imagine what Paul felt like at the end of his life when his, you know, they're deciding whether or not he's going to live or die, and nobody shows up at the court hearing? Like nobody showed. Paul said nobody showed up. And so you don't see these people showing up anymore. Like there's a pain that's involved with that. Be honest about that. Uh, next, I would say this, I would say, you know, God does not waste anything. So I would put this question to you that was put to me by a dear friend that helped me through this. Uh, what is God teaching me through this pain? Uh, God doesn't waste your pain, the pain that you're experiencing and that you're going through. There is a reason for it. He is trying to get your attention. Maybe he's disciplining you. God would use unrighteous pagan nations in the Old Testament to discipline Israel and bring them back around. Uh, I've already said, recognize sometimes godly people have sharp disagreements. But then fourth, remember that Jesus remains in control and that his kingdom will last forever. That this split comes and you will deal with it. But ultimately, the purposes of God will not be thwarted 
that his churches will continue on in great commission faithfulness and a remnant always remains. It just may not be exactly what it was before, and it probably will never be that exactly again. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Now I'll add this in just real quick. You know, if we have church members listening to this, you got to understand Yes, God has has called us to ministry. This is this is the the career that God has called us to as pastoring the flock. But but sit there and just think through what, what you just heard Travis talk about. You know, you know the, the the hurt, the struggle, the pain is is sit there ne- next time you're in a business meeting or next time you're in in something, and you disagree with people, you disagree with the pastor. You know, sit there and ask yourself before you take any actions, before you start speaking against, you know, is what I'm going to say going to cause long-term effect? Mm. You know, I mean, I love this shirt and I'll see the post every now and then people say, you know, a pastor is a person too. You know, the, our, our words carry a lot of baggage with them. That's right. You know, and, and if, if, even if we disagree, you know, you've got to understand that if you disagree over, something very minor that's okay like if you're going to disagree over okay i want to start to sanitize the toys in the children's department which hopefully we're doing now because of COVID 19 but you know you think that's just a waste of my time that's perfectly okay to realize okay i disagree with the pastor and i think that's a waste of time versus making that into a personal vendetta and an attack like we break bread and we break fellowship over big issues of understanding interpreting and living out what the bible says not practical little small things in the church so if it is a small thing in the church that the bible does not clearly address then we act out as it is a small thing we don't make it into a big deal yeah make a mountain and the molehills are never helpful um, no. i would like to say one more thing before we kind of end this episode this might help me with a little closure from that since this is the eighth anniversary i'd like to take a minute and thank the men that God used to help me move through that. And so uh, I think I've already mentioned his name, but Dr. Ross Nunes, who was very helpful and was an elder at the church that I went to and worked on staff with. Uh, Brandon Wright, Pastor Brandon Wright. He's currently not in a church pastoring, but he will forever be a pastor to me. He, he pulled me through that and kind of sent a good Jonathan David relationship when I desperately needed it the most. Um, the other elders there, Ryan James and David Wilkinson. And then of course the deacons I had, I had great deacons at the church when all this went down. And, uh, after when the fallout happened, I'd love to say they all kind of stayed faithful and stayed together, but that wouldn't be the truth. Uh, some of them went different pathways and different ways to different churches. Some even changed denomination. They said they were tired of SBC fights and, um, you know, but Dirk Combs comes to mind and Mark Vance, they were, they were very good, solid, helpful brothers during that time. So I'm very thankful for those men. God used them in a very critical time in my life. And of course, I'll forever be thankful to uh, those who came with us over to the new church and to those at Crossroad, that Crossroad Church there in Indiana, that church family just loved on us and helped us heal in that time for a year afterwards. So sweet. Well, Travis, thank you for joining us today and being open and vulnerable with us through how to survive a, a church split. You know, I've, I've told people we, we've talked about different things. I said, you know, crossing is bad, but I, I never had anybody slice my tires. There you go. That's the new standard, you know. Is, <laughs> so I told uh, people when they look at it, I was like, I have a friend of mine that 
the end of business meeting had, had his tires slashed. That's true. And they're like, I said, yeah. So, so I realized I've not had it as bad as others, but in saying all of that, thank you all for joining us for this episode of the Appalachian Baptist podcast. Join us again next week. Same time, same hour. Hope you all have a good day and God bless. You have been listening to the Appalachian Baptist Network. Thanks for joining us. If you have a question or comment for our host, please send an email to Network at gmail.com or send us a voice message on our Anchor website page at anchor.fm slash Appalachian dash Baptist dash network. Join us again next Monday.